Hello, Christ Church. Happy Easter to you all. I'm here earlier in the week recording this sermon and already thinking how much I'm going to miss uh, being with you all on, on uh, Easter morning. Ever since I became a Christian, Easter has been my, my favorite day of the whole year. It always seems to be sunny and it's springtime and everyone's here and all the Easter hymns and it's just such a joy and so, so strange to, to be a part. Um, but I, I'll be praying the Lord uh, give you his presence, the presence of the risen Christ um, with you on this special day. And uh, we're going to uh, continue uh, our study through uh, the Gospel of John. We're going to spend one more week uh, in John talking about the, the raising of Lazarus uh, today. And uh, before we turn to God's Word, let me just uh, give a shout out to those kids who sent in uh, sermon notes from last week. I love seeing all these notes. And uh, I'll just uh, read them off for you. Emma and Jonathan Bender, Samuel, Charlotte, and Miriam Keel. Sarah and Phoebe Rosenberg, Eddie, Gabe, Lily, and Karina Papera, Lily, Isaac, uh, Ellis, Lucy, Molly, Will, Ada, and Henry Walker. Well done, kids. Uh, love getting those notes. Keep sending them in, and uh, good work uh, following along on the, on the sermons. You can send those notes into admin at ChristChurchBellingham.org. Kids, older kids especially, I'd love to see your notes and uh, see a picture as well. And uh, just one other announcement for you at, at Christ Church. Uh, if you are not getting emails from us through Church Community Builder, we would love to know. We're sending out videos every week, giving updates on the church and pastoral reflections. We have musicians who are sending music out, and we hope that you're uh, getting those videos. So if you are not, please email us at admin at ChristChurchBellingham.org, and we'd love to make sure your settings on Church Community Builder are right, so you're staying connected to the church during this time. So we're going to turn now to, to God's Word, uh, John chapter 11, starting in verse 38. This is the Word of the Lord. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, we thank you that you have gathered us in our homes uh, to come before your holy word and hear the proclamation of the amazing good news of the gospel that Jesus is alive. 
He was risen 2,000 years ago. He's ascended into heaven. He's alive this day. He is coming again. We pray that you would give us hearts to cherish this amazing hope. Would it be the source of joy for us? Would it also uh, be our source of strength with all that we are facing as a church, as a nation right now? And so we uh, uh, pray for your Holy Spirit to take these words and uh, use them as, as comfort and hope for us. And so uh, we come before you uh, eager to be taught. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this is our uh, third sermon on, on the story of the death and, and raising of Lazarus. Uh, several weeks ago, uh, Craig gave us a sermon on the topic of death, and, and then I followed that with a sermon on grief about death. Well, this week, we finally get to hear about resurrection. And there could probably be not a more relevant uh, topic for us. Uh, just this week, our president has said we're facing our toughest week so far with the coronavirus. Uh, there'll be a lot of death in our nation this week. And so what does the Lord give us as a church in the midst of all this? He gives us Easter. He gives us the, the good news that Jesus has conquered death. And Jesus' resurrection is an event uh, in history, unlike anything else that has ever happened. Actually, you know, I've just these last couple of weeks, I've been reading this little book by Carl Jung. Carl Jung is a leading mind in forming modern psychology. It's called The Undiscovered Self. And I was reading along in this, and at one point, uh, he actually talks about why he thinks it's not necessary that we literally believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And his reason is, because long before the coming of Christianity, mankind believed in a life after death and therefore had no need of the Easter event as a guarantee of immortality. He says, you know, all kinds of people believe that your soul goes someplace when you die. People believe that before Jesus came. People, modern people believe that, that when you die, you pass into the light. So why do we need Easter? Well, it's because Easter is not about the immortality of the soul. Jesus' soul did not come back to life on Easter morning. His body did. And that is a radically different kind of thing. And if you think all kinds of people throughout history uh, and in different cultures have believed that death could be reversed and your body could be resurrected to an indestructible life, that's just wrong. The Greeks didn't believe that. The Romans didn't believe that. You know, in the Far East, the, the Hindus and the, and the Buddhists, they didn't believe that. Modern people certainly don't believe that. Easter is about something so wildly unprecedented, no culture or religion has even dared to promise it. The undoing of death, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. There is no other person in history who would have the audacity to promise such a thing except for Jesus Christ. And this story about uh, Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, it's a preview. It's like a little picture about Jesus' own resurrection and what it means. You know, you see there in verse 38, what does it say? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. 
What are these words about the tomb and the stone? What does that all bring to mind for us? It brings to mind for us Easter morning when Jesus was raised from the dead and his tomb and his stone. And, uh, and so today we're going to try and understand the resurrection. Why is Easter so important? What does it mean? And there are three answers that I want to highlight for us as we look at John uh, chapter 11 together. And this is what they are. That the resurrection is a judgment. The resurrection faces the decay of evil. And the resurrection is a gift of grace. Three profound truths. That the resurrection is a judgment. We'll explain what we mean by that as we go along. The resurrection faces the decay of evil. And third, the resurrection is a gift of grace. So, favorite topic to talk with you all about this morning. So, three important points. And uh, the first is this. The resurrection is a judgment. The resurrection is a judgment. And you see how this passage begins in verse, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Literally, it says that he was deeply moved within himself. So there's something stirring in a very deep place within Jesus. And uh, this is the second time that that uh, Greek word it has been used in this passage, embrimaomai. And uh, a few uh, weeks ago, I mentioned in the passage right before this, that this word means to be outraged. You know, it's Jesus' visceral response against death and against the curse and the brokenness of the world. And uh, it led Jesus to weep, that famous verse where Jesus weeps. And God grieves the brokenness of the curse and the misery of the fallen world. But now, Jesus' outrage leads him not simply to grieve, but to act. And this word, uh, you know, can also mean to, to warn sternly. And so Jesus in this passage is coming in judgment over the curse of death. You know, most of us, when we hear about the word judgment, that's the part of the Bible that we don't like. You know, where it talks about God's wrath and we think it's kind of unpleasant. It's kind of barbaric. It seems like, oh, in the back in the day, you know, they thought that the gods were unstable and they would get angry. And, and you know, that they're like us and we're just making the gods kind of like us. But, you know, you find throughout the Bible, God's people are always eagerly awaiting his judgment. It's something that they sing about and they celebrate and they can't wait till it finally will come. And you say, why, why are they excited about judgment? It's because judgment is when God sets the world right. God makes things right in the world. You know, the picture that should come to mind is you, you imagine like an old town in the, in, the, in the Old West and that's overrun by bandits. And all the people are in their houses and they're, you know, cowering in fear and no one wants to go outside. And there's these drunk bandits who've taken over this town. And then finally the sheriff comes and he runs out the, the bandits and he brings justice and order back to the city. And all the people come out of their towns and they're celebrating. They're like, finally, we have our town back. That's what a judge does. Uh, and when you picture a judge in the Bible, you don't want to picture the old man in a black robe, you know, with the gavel in the courtroom. That's not what you want to picture. What you want to picture is, you know, William Wallace with his face painted blue and he's riding on a horse. And he's going to go defeat the enemy so he can free the people of Scotland. A judge is a warrior. And so actually that's how Calvin, when he's talking about this passage, Calvin describes Jesus this way. And he says, Jesus approaches the tomb as a champion who prepares for a contest. 
And therefore, we need not wonder that he again groans, for the violent tyranny of death, which he had to conquer, is placed before his eyes. So Jesus is a biblical judge, a warrior coming in wrath to slay his ancient foe, death itself. As this passage, Jesus coming, you know, being deeply moved within him, it's like a mini picture of the last day. On that day, too, when Jesus returns again, he will be deeply moved within him and uh, at the brokenness of his creation. And this is just basically what Christians believe, you know, unless if no one's ever said it, kind of put it all together for you, is that, that when we die, a great violence is done to our person. Our soul and our body, which are meant to go together, are ripped apart. And what happens is, is, is if you are in Christ, your soul goes to be with God in heaven, but your body goes into the ground and it decomposes and it, and it, and it rots and it, and it lies there. And, uh, and our souls wait with God for the last day when Jesus will come back to his creation to make all things new. And, you know, when you hear that language, the Bible says that God's going to make all things new. You don't want to picture that that means he's going to destroy the universe and then make a new universe. That's not what he's going to do. The renewal of all things is when God does for his creation what he did for Jesus on Easter morning. The Bible says that Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of a new creation. It was the preview. It was the beginning of what God was going to do throughout his creation. And it says that the whole creation is eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. The whole creation, you know, the, the mountains and the trees and the rivers and the stars are all, and the animals are all eagerly awaiting that day. And the hope of the Christian is not that we're going to spend eternity bouncing around on clouds, you know, in the netherworld playing harps for, end, for endless ages, but that God's creation would finally become what it was meant to be. And that humans would finally become what we'd be meant to be. So you imagine if we were freed from sin, what would we do? We'd build these beautiful garden cities. There would be all kinds of culture and art and feasting and, uh, and adventures that we would, uh, we would go on. And, uh, and animals, we would train animals and they, we would uh, live with them in love and worship to God. And then the whole creation would be flooded with God's own presence. You know, it's like the air that we breathe. It surrounds us right now. It's everywhere. And it's in our lungs and it's inside us and it makes us live. And in it, we live and move and have our being. And it's like God's very presence will be here like that. And humanity will finally be what it was meant to be. When Jesus comes in judgment, that's what he's coming to bring. And so you may wonder, wow, that is incredible picture of a future world. How could I ever believe like some, something like that is possible? Because it's already happened once. It's already happened in Jesus. And when we look backwards to be certain of what will come in the future, the resurrection is a judgment, but one that you should eagerly anticipate so that whatever hard road God calls you to walk down, whether it's a hard month some of us have very hard months that are ahead of us. Whether it's a hard year, even if it's a hard decade, we walk that road with this wild hope singing in our hearts. I know how this story ends. Jesus is coming to make all things new. So I will stand fast, I will hold firm, and I will be immovable. This is the hope of Easter.
Now, some of you will hear that and think, wow, the renewal of God's creation, living in God's presence, no more death, no more sickness, you know, garden cities. Wow, this is beautiful. But by saying that we have a great hope in the future, it can kind of have a tendency to minimize the pain of our suffering now. You can't just say that because we have this beautiful future, the brokenness we face now is no big deal. Well, that's our second point. So the first thing that we see is that the resurrection is a judgment. But because of that, our second point is the resurrection faces the decay of evil. The resurrection faces the decay of evil. So when we ask the question, are we just covering up suffering with a thin candy shell of a future hope, two things that we see in this passage are that it's Martha who wants to hide the decay, but it is Jesus who faces the decay and transforms it into glory. And I want to talk a little bit about both of those things. So first, Martha wants to hide the decay. Martha wants to hide the decay. And you see in, in verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. He says, let me, see the, let me see the dead man. But then Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Martha has been grieving the loss of her brother. Um, they buried him. They're in this process of how they're going to move on. And, you know, after four days, uh, Lazarus' body would be bloated. And, you know, it may have been twice the size it was when he died. But, I mean, it's just gross. You know, his, all of his organs would have been decomposing. And the thing is just gross and stinky. And Martha is saying, Jesus, you don't know how bad it is. This tragedy is beyond repair. And I don't want you digging up my pain. And I think, you know, some of us think of our past suffering that way. It's beyond repair. We don't want God or anyone else digging it up. We just want to keep it buried. But resurrection doesn't just keep things buried. You know, you think of the evil in the world. Uh, so many of the acts of abuse and violence and betrayal have been done in secret. Evils are buried. You know, they're buried by the perpetrators of evil. People who do evil things want to bury them and keep them in secret. People who are the victims of evil want to bury things. They don't want to think about it. They don't, you know, uh, I, I knew a guy when I lived in St. Louis who had experienced a tremendous amount of trauma and abuse in his childhood. He had no memory from before the age of 10. His body had, had shut out all of those memories to keep them buried. And, uh, but we all know that bearing the decay and the brokenness of the world will not bring healing. And you know, some of you, when you've come to church and you've built a, started a relationship with God, you found that there have been things in your life that have been buried and decaying for a long time, and you are afraid of the foul odor that will come from digging them up. And this moves Jesus deeply. He wants to remove the stone. He wants to reveal the brokenness and face it. Uh, and so even though Martha wants to hide the decay, second, Jesus faces the decay and transforms it into glory. Jesus faces the decay and transforms it into glory. And that's why uh, verse 40, 
Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus is going to turn this bloated, decomposing, stinky body into a display of the beauty and glory of God. It's an amazing thing. These two things that such suffering and such glory are put next to each other. But the gospel is always doing that, putting suffering and glory next to each other, right? When was Jesus glorified? On the cross. He went to the cross. That was this displaying the love of God and the beauty of who God, uh, God is. The Apostle Paul, he says this in 2 Corinthians about us. This light momentary affliction. He talk, that's how he describes our life. A light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And our, our old uh, assistant pastor, Daniel Robbins, he told me about a, an illustration from Jonathan Edwards about that verse. And Jonathan Edwards says that our life is, is kind of like a block of wood. And if you imagine that every suffering that we go through, every tragedy, every heart, you know, broken heart experience that we go through, it's like a knife is coming into a, the piece of wood and cutting out a piece of the wood. And you imagine all the suffering of our life, the more suffering that we have, this bowl is formed in the wood and the bowl gets bigger and bigger and bigger with each cut of the knife. And he says that we, when we come to the Lord and when Jesus makes all things new, this bowl will then be filled with glory. And the deeper the bowl, the deeper the glory that we will know about the Lord. I mean, it's preparing for us to be in God's presence. And this is a crucial element about Easter. When Jesus rose from the dead, he still had his scars. You remember, he showed them to Thomas. He said, look at my side, look at my hands. Resurrection is not about hiding the decay and brokenness. His scars become a part of his eternal glory. And I guarantee you, you know, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, after he's been bloated and all his organs have decomposed and now he's been resurrected, he looked different. He had the marks of, you were dead once and now you're alive. And, and he was a different person than he was before he died. And the Apostle Paul says the same will be true for us. Our, affliction now, our afflictions now are preparing for us a weight of glory. And that means that scars and suffering are transformed by Jesus into beauty and glory. And you know, my, my wife Shannon and I were just talking about this the other day. As we are looking at each other's gray hairs and wrinkles that are forming. And you know, our culture is so obsessed with the beauty of youth. And I was struck that her gray hairs have this real physical beauty to them because all of my wife's gray hairs are charged with meaning. They represent the life that we've shared together, our marriage and our children, the struggles and, the, and our ministry and our work and our hardships. And our scars and wrinkles tell the story of our life. And so the resurrection isn't going to be a bunch of inexperienced 20-year-olds running around in the new creation. It will be some incredible fusion of the vitality of youth and the experience and wisdom and suffering of age. And our scars will become a part of our eternal glory. That's an incredible picture. The resurrection faces the decay of evil and transforms it. So the resurrection doesn't ignore the seriousness and reality of our suffering. Jesus will come in judgment and face all the evil of the world, and he will not bury our suffering like Martha wanted to, but he will transform even our scars and suffering into beauty and glory to God.
And if this is true, if that is really true, what God is going to do in our lives, there is nothing more important in your life than this. There's nothing more important than Easter. And actually, I, I realized this just the other day. My family was, was having dinner, and, and my, son, my son Henry said, hey, I have a discussion question. My question is, when I'm playing Fortnite, Fortnite is a video game that you play online, and I'm playing with some other people, can I tell them about Jesus and about being a Christian while I'm playing Fortnite with them? And, you know, so I said, well, what would you say to him if you were going to tell him about being a Christian? And he's like, well, I'd probably say, if you don't want to go to hell, you should believe in Jesus. And uh, all our whole family kind of laughed and said, well, you know, these are strangers, you know, they, they might be kind of offended by you just telling them that. And, uh, but as I thought about it, I thought, you know, in our family, we talk about Jesus and being a Christian all the time. We hardly ever talk about hell. Why would that stick out to Henry? This is the thing I need to tell you. And it struck me that there's an honesty to what Henry is saying. The truth is there's coming a day when Jesus will come and take away the stone and dig up every evil and rotting piece of humanity that ever lived. And we'll all face him. And there are only two options. Either you are a part of the evil that uh, Jesus is going to save the world from. Either you're one of the bandits that's in the town that he needs to clear out. That will be the worst day that you could ever imagine. Or you will have every scar transformed into glory. And uh, you'll be one of the people who are delivered and saved. And it will be literally the best thing that you could have ever imagined. And what Henry is saying is, yeah, there's a lot to learn about the Bible and being a Christian. But when you boil it down, this is the one question. Which path are you on? What could possibly matter more about your existence than that question? That my scars could be transformed into glory in the person of Jesus. And you might be listening to this video and say, I'm not sure which path I'm on. Well, there's something uh, we have to make clear. We naturally think that, you know, the bandits, the bad people in the town are, are the bad people of the world and the people in the houses that are waiting for the sheriff to come are the good people. But the Bible says that we are all the bad people. And Christians are not the good people and while the world is the bad people. Christians are people who have realized that they are the bad people and come to Jesus to be saved. Christians are the people who have realized that they are the bad people and they've come to Jesus to be saved. And this leads to our final point. So first, uh, the resurrection is a judgment. Jesus setting the world right. A second, the resurrection faces the decay of evil. Jesus uncovers the truth about the world and can transform even our scars into glory. But third, the resurrection is a gift of grace. The resurrection is a gift of grace. And one of the great truths about Christianity is that having a share in Jesus' resurrection is not something you earn or work for with your good works so that God will give it to you. It is a gift that God gives by grace to people who don't deserve it. And what Christians believe is that in the whole universe, before the universe began, there was one God who existed in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who in the, out of an overflow of their love created this world. And uh, the hope of Easter 
is that the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit continues to spill over to their world despite our sin. And you see that there in verse 41 where it says, So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Here's the Father and the Son. And the love of the Father and the Son still is spilling over at this little grave of Lazarus. And so that's the same love that made the world. It's the same love that's also going to heal the world. And grace is when the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share their love with people who don't deserve it. People like you and me. And so how do you get grace? How do you get that grace in your life? Well, a couple answers. On the one hand, grace is received by faith. And you see what Jesus says there in verse 41 again. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. See, this was all Jesus, uh, the raising of Lazarus. So all was happening before Jesus' disciples who were about to see Jesus go to the cross. And then he was going to be raised from the dead. And then he's going to ascend into heaven and they're going to be sent out to go start all these churches all over the world. And, and so they needed faith. And so Jesus raises Lazarus to strengthen their faith. And what faith is, faith isn't just intellectually believing that it's possible for God to raise someone from the dead. Faith is a personal trust. It's coming to believe that God really is a father who loves us and he wants good things for us. And if it's a good and loving father who made this world, the story of this world is going to have a good ending. How else could it end without God reversing death? And so we trust him. And the disciples are called to believe because grace is received not by doing good works, but by trusting in the goodness of God. Some of you will ask, you know, maybe an interesting question. Did Lazarus have faith in this passage? You know, Lazarus is lying there dead in the, in the tomb. It's impossible for him to have faith. And so on the one hand, grace is received by faith. But maybe even more importantly, second, grace comes through the word of Jesus. Grace is given through the word of Jesus. And there's poor old Lazarus, bloated and organs decomposing, you know, reeking the place up. And it says in verse 43, when Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. Before Lazarus could believe in the resurrection, resurrection saved him. So we need to receive grace by faith. But grace is what gives us the life to believe. Grace comes and saves us. Grace comes and finds us. And you know, I remember when I first learned this, uh, 20 years ago, it was Easter morning. I was a brand new Christian. And my family and I, my family are not Christians. And we, they came to church with me on Easter morning. It was one of our first Easter mornings. And clearly, we didn't know what we were doing because we showed up on time. And the church was already full. It had 2,000 people. And it was University Presbyterian Church in, in Seattle. And so they had set up some extra chairs in the front row of the church. And we squeezed in. And we were right in front of the pastor in his, in his pulpit that he was giving the sermon. We were right below. And we could hardly see him. And the pastor was, his name is Earl Palmer. And he was just... Uh, amazing, powerful preacher. And he's, he's a little man. He looks kind of like a hobbit. He's got these rosy cheeks and he's just brilliant. 
And uh, we're listening to this sermon, and uh, you know, Earl Palmer did not know who we were. We were these visitors that were coming into his church. And at the climactic moment of the sermon, he climbs up on the pulpit because he's little, and he looks over to us in the front row, and he points at my family, and he looks them in the eyes, and he says, you don't find grace. Grace finds you. And we thought, we look at each other and we say, was he talking to us? And I'll never forget that moment. You don't find grace. Grace comes and finds you. Lazarus didn't go out looking for grace. Grace came into the tomb and found him and called him from death to life. That is what the grace of Easter is. This is the hope of the resurrection, is the hope of grace. And grace isn't a power. It's not an energy. Grace is a person. Grace is only found in one place in this universe, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. And so may his resurrection grace come into your life this Easter, and may it sustain you throughout this pandemic all the way until that last day when he comes to set all things right, and then all shall be well. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you, O God, that your great love spilled over to make this beautiful world, this beautiful universe, to make us. We praise you that your love continues to spill over, to raise Jesus from the dead, to give us new life in him, and to give us an amazing hope for the future, that we might be in your kingdom and to be with you always. This is our deep longing, and we are alongside the whole creation, are eagerly awaiting your coming. And so, Lord Jesus, come. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.